This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. You are not hearing our theme music because, well, I thought it was not quite right for this occasion. The occasion being, well, you know what I'm talking about. It's Mother's Day. And to mark the date, we want to do um, just sort of start a conversation today on this show, do something a little different about motherhood, what it means to have a mom, what it means to be one, and maybe some of the unspoken truths of motherhood. I'm Robert Polly here with my colleague, Andrea Monroe. Hi, Andrea. Oops, it's not going to work unless I turn up your microphone. Now say it again. Happy Mother's Day, everyone. (laughs) And I wanted to say a word about the genesis of this show. Uh, Andrea and I were talking uh, about the fact that I used to listen to um, a bilingual station coming out of Fresno, I think it was, late at night. And the DJ would play music and read dedications and even play dedications from people to their loved ones, from boyfriends to girlfriends, girlfriends to boyfriends, from relatives to they're dearly beloved, either here or departed, or maybe away on work or in prison. And I love that idea of the radio being used as a channel between people, the airwaves, as this giant conduit for thoughts between people who care about each other. So I thought I'd try to do that today and maybe push the conversation in some interesting directions. And um, we're going to be taking calls from you listeners who are hopefully willing to take a break from your Mother's Day brunches or whatever observances you're taking part in to give us a call. I'll give out the number in a little while, but first I wanted to get things rolling with one of these free and frank discussions of motherhood that I've been uh, talking about. This one is with my own mother, Louise Polly. Have I ever made you wonder whether you should have uh, terminated the pregnancy? You sure about that? Oh, God. I, I couldn't be more sure. Robert, you have to understand that I absolutely could not wait to have children. From the time I was 11 years old, I would take care of any baby I could get my hands on. I went to our neighbor's house who had a late child and kids my age, and I went to their house every day after school and took care of their little girl, Patty. I loved the idea. I couldn't wait. And I, I've thought a lot about it, and I think that part of it was probably reparenting myself since my mother did not want children and was not much of a you know warm mother for, for a, a youngster. Um, so I think that, that that's my analysis of what it was. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I, nothing, I wanted five kids. I mean, there's never been a moment where I was sad I had children. Well, I, I was really talking about not that expectation of what it would be like, but the reality once it's said. But the reality, in. no, no, that never, never, ever, ever occurred to me. I might have wanted to strangle you once in a while, but no, well, I was thinking back to some of the uh, the cold realities um, that confronted you when you, you know, after you <laughs> started rearing me. Um, do you remember that time when I was eight years old when I became a kleptomaniac? Yeah. I mean, uh, shoplifting and stealing things from people's homes. And I had no idea why I was doing it. And thankfully, and neither, thankfully and it went like away. But um, I feel like we mishandled it totally. Well, was that pretty despairing? Robert, the the saddest thing about motherhood, I think, is that parents think of their children as extensions of themselves. And so the child's failure becomes the mother's failure. The child's success becomes the mother's success. 
and that's a terrible, terrible message to give your children. And it's sad that we parents tend to think that way. And so uh, the kid feels this responsibility, and, and the parent feels this failure in, in this case. And so I think it gets all messed up in our minds as to more not what did you do wrong, but what did I do wrong. Well, that's, that's sort of what I was thinking. I mean, you probably don't even have any inkling of all the bad things I did at school later on, but how did you respond to what you did know about, you know, like I say, the eight-year-old uh, larceny stage? Shameful. Yeah. You know, I felt it as my shame and and confusion that, you know, of course, why, how could you, um, and, and, and I think I could be wrong, but in general, in, in terms of discipline and everything, uh, I was much more forgiving than your father. I don't know if it felt that way to you, but it felt that way to me, whether that's correct or not. And I think he was just plain angry, uh, is my memory. <laughs> is that your memory, too? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you know how entangled we get in these situations, <laughs> how, how everybody's thinking about everybody else. Yeah. I actually, even at eight years old, and even in the grip of uh, compulsion, I had no understanding of it all. I think I was a little bit worried about you guys. Um, yeah, I, well, yeah, that, as I said, we I mean, send you that message. I mean, I, I just remember him being distraught, and I felt sorry for him, even as he was, like, you know, disciplining me yeah. uh, angrily. I was yeah. feeling sorry for him in a weird way, you know, yeah. and probably feeling sorry for myself. But, um, yeah, um, a lot of uh, a hall of mirrors there. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying, and and it's it's... <laughs> You know, well, you're laughing at it, but but I think of it as a very, very serious boundary problem that we have in terms of knowing, you know, where we end and and the other person begins, and realizing that we need to set the kids free from the sense that what they do reflects upon us. It, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, we do our very best. And, but the, the child is comes in a wired way and sees the world in his or her way. And and uh, if we can just let go of that sense that every time the child uh, not only fails but succeeds, that somehow it reflects on us. It's robbing the child of something and is denying ourselves something also. Tell me, tell me how much of this very, very reasonable and, and sort of circumspect you know, description you're giving me now came out of your later career as a therapist. Okay, the the part about <laughs> you being your success as being a reflection of me came out of my later training. No question about so, that. So you weren't fully aware of it or practicing no, it when, when I was not, young. and I, I I made I made that mistake. Well, I'm interested in the the, the muck of actual interaction and um, not just the way that we make sense of it afterwards, you know. What was your worst fear uh, about my destiny, about what I might become at, at various points in my <laughs> in my, in my uh, development? <laughs> I'm... You must have had some. I'm trying to think. I, I don't remember having fear our worst outcome. I certainly remember wondering what you were up to, 
you know, when you would go out in the middle of the night with Tom and stuff like that. Oh, we, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you knew I was sneaking out in the middle of the night? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah, we were up to bad things, I won't tell you. Yeah, okay. I mean, it was it was kid stuff, but... <laughs> it was kid stuff, I know. and But I don't remember being horrified about it. I knew you kids were going out and doing stuff. Um, <laughs> I just didn't... That I, I, I didn't spend any sleepless nights about. I really didn't, mm-hmm. ever. And mm-hmm. I just, as far as I was concerned, there was never any question in my mind that you were going to be successful at whatever you wanted to do. I just, I had no reason to think that you wouldn't be. What about um, the fact that you were a career person? I mean, you, you wanted kids, as you said, but you also had a career uh, as a teacher. Um, was there a conflict there at all? Well, in actuality, my idea was one, I wanted to have five kids. <laughs> Secondly, uh, I had totally walked away from my career, had absolutely no intention of going back to any career. Oh. My intention was to be a mother and to to be involved in, in organizations. Well, um, so you, you didn't have an intention, it just sort of happened. Exactly. And then you became a very hardworking, full-time, more oh, yeah. more than full-time uh, yes, educator. Much more than full-time. Much yeah. more time. Administrator slash ed- educator. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, how did that feel? I mean, it was pulling you away from parenting. As far as my getting involved professionally, I think psychologically, if anything, it made me, uh, it, it saved my life. Saved your life from, from what? From being really unhappy in my marriage. Oh. Because Dad wasn't around. Right. He was never home. You know, he he worked and he had his private practice, and he just wasn't home. Uh-huh. And because and because the same thing is with you kids. My job was to make you kids happy and to make him happy. And that's how I saw it. I should know what he needed before he knew what he needed. Uh-huh. I Literally, that's what I thought. I mean, I can remember jumping up because his coffee cup was getting low and filling it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it irritated the hell out of him. <laughs> and Lord knows he didn't need more coffee. <laughs> but, but that's how I saw it. You said earlier that you didn't think your mom really wanted you. Oh, I know that. How do you know? Because she told me. She told you? Oh, absolutely. Uh, how did she tell you, and when? Oh, she she never made any bones about the fact that she never wanted children. How, she how did she deliver this? body disfigured. She was very vain. She had no interest in having children. And, and when she did have me, she really disliked just about everything about it. Well, well how did your, your mother... Um who I knew as my grandmother and, and loved right. quite a bit and was very, very loving toward me. Yes. Um, how, but how did she tell you this incredibly hurtful thing that she never wanted you? I don't think she thought it as hurtful because, you know, she would always end it with, uh, I, I love you. You know, by the time she told me that, I was, you know, I don't know how old I was. Yeah, how old were you? Do you when do you remember hearing that from your own mother? I just remember it as a part of my life from very early on. Well, that makes me feel really sad for you. Well, I it I 
have done a lot of work on that, Robert. I have gone back uh, in sort of a semi-hypnotic kind of therapy and uh, just taken care of that child. I, I, I believe with all my heart that my mother tried to get rid of me. Wow. What do you mean? You, In utero, yeah. What's the basis of that belief? By just uh, being in therapy and in a kind of trance and, and being aware that um, something was happening. But that's getting sort of... That may be woo-woo to you, but, yes. <laughs> but I believe it. It makes perfect sense. But we'll never know that, I guess. No. But what I'm saying is I've done this reparative work for that child. Uh-huh. You know, the idea, if you think of it this way, the fact that I was so busy being a mother to when I was a very young child to all to children in the neighborhood to, as a babysitter uh, and then having my own children, I think was a, partly a part of reparenting myself. Yeah. So, how'd the reparenting go? <laughs> I I I take good care of that little girl. <laughs> I really do. Mm. Mm. I really do. I'm I, I'm very aware of her. I'm very aware of of things that um, she needs to hear from me. Mm. Like what? Just that that I get to be me, mm -hmm. and that I'm loved for me. And that I don't have to to uh, be happy, you know, for them. Um, and I don't have to be a great scientist for my father. Who wanted you to be a scientist? Oh, yeah. But, you know, these intergenerational things, these themes are so important. They're so important for people to try and understand. And, and uh, the more you understand them... Um, I really believe that, that that you can make peace with them and, and be okay. Yeah. Well, I guess it's one of the themes of, of this day, Mother's Day, huh? Yeah, it is. <laughs> it definitely is. Well, happy Mother's Day, Mom. <laughs> okay, Robert. I love you. I love you, too. Bye-bye. Bye, Mom. Words of wisdom there from my mother, Lou Polly. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream of growing up to ride on a freight train leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one could change my mind but Mama tried. One and only rebel child from a family meek and mild, my Mama seemed to know what lay in store. Despite all my Sunday learning, towards the bad I kept on turning, till Mama couldn't hold me anymore. I turned 21 in prison, doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried, Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, cause Mama tried.
And this is the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP. I'm Robert Polly here with Andrea Monroe. And the subject, as you've no doubt divined, is Mother's Day and sort of getting candid conversations going about Mother's Day. You know, listening to your mom, I just was struck by the universality of momness. Motherhood <laughs> sounds too formal. It's momness. <laughs> your mother sounds like my mother. Um, especially the part about when, you know, she said, I, I always wanted to be a mom. And that's what my mother said. All the, and what was interesting to me, it was followed by, and I wanted to be a mom all my life in spite of the fact that I was put in charge of raising or be put in charge of helping to raise her own brothers and sisters. And... Um, to me, that sounded a little scary. I was like, "How do you how do you make that? How do you make those decisions?" Well, well you've uh, been talking to your own mom, Andrea, in the last couple of days. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can tell us a little bit about her and, and what you were interested in finding out from her. Yeah, my my mom, who lives in New Jersey, her name is Dorothy Dorothy Monroe, and uh, she was born and raised in North Carolina, and is one of six kids, and was the oldest girl, and. She says in those days, you know, first of all, she was groomed. All girls were groomed early on to be in charge and take care of any anything living. And that's what she, you know, she was put in charge to take care of her brothers and sisters. Um, but also knew she always wanted to be a mom. Now, one of the things that I want to talk to her about is this idea of um, or this label of being such a strong black mother, strong black woman. And what her take. No, was no wait a minute. That. What label? I mean, who, who's labeling? Oh, yeah. Um it's actually a f- official label, the SBW, Strong Black Woman, um, at, which I wasn't aware of. But in f- conversations over the years with friends who, where we've grappled with whether or not we want to be mothers and want to be parents, and I'm talking about Af- other African-American women, friends of mine, mm-hmm. you know, we all used to complain somewhat or at least talk about being fearful of just having to live up to this expectation of being super strong, like almost superhuman. Um, being able doing, to do everything on your own. Being, yeah, which... You know, all women, I think, feel some pressure, you know, around that. But black women, I think around the if you're low income, it's this whole thing like, how did my mama feed me with no money and, you know, all of this kind of stuff and still have time to play with us and, you know, all of these things. And so that kind of a pressure has been summed up in this label called the SBW or strong black women. So I asked my mother what her take on was that and what her take on that was. And she said, you know. What would be the opposite? What do you want to, should I call myself weak? I would never, you know, I would never do that. What I was asking her really was what are the consequences of having to live up to that all the time? But to her, she, it was a badge of honor. You know, Mm. it's something that she's proud of the fact that she was able to accomplish a lot as a single mom Mm. and, you know, really, you know, cover a lot of bases economically, emotionally, just do all these things for us. Um, you know, but for me, it seems scary. And to her, no. <laughs> you think you think your generation um, is starting to question that, though? Yeah, I think so. I mean, this, uh, you know, what was surprised me was to find an essay or a couple essays online. Um, largely, you know, it seems like a lot of African women, like as in from Kenya, there's a blog called Diary of a Man, Mad Kenyan Woman. And she specifically talks about the myth of the SBW, strong black woman, and how it's crazy, how it's she, in fact, she ends her essay saying something to the effect of, let the era of the, of the weak black woman begin, which when I mentioned <laughs> that to my mom, that really was not something she wanted to hear. Um, and that seems a little extreme too. But the point is, you know, um, well, I just want to quickly read this really 
quick quote from this essay. She says, in, in reference to strong black women being like superheroes, if Superman leaps over a tall building in a single bound, well, yawn, stretch and change the channel. If I were to leap over a tall building in a single bound, I would expect some serious attention, astonishment, adoration for everyone to realize that having done all that leaping about, I would need a long, good long rest. And that's the missing part, I think, of, you know, what a lot of women and what I believe women in my community put themselves through. It's this, they like, you know, the label of being strong, you know, is admirable, but where do you get that long rest? Where do you get to say, you know, I, I'm not a super hero and I can't sustain this. Andrea, you get it one day a year on Mother's Day. Oh, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Which for a lot of mothers are still working. (laughs) That's true. They're preparing the Mother's Day breakfast that everybody else is eating. Well, you you talk about a myth of a strong black woman. Of course, there's a lot of truth to it. Um, And uh, it's celebrated, of course, uh, in many a song. You brought one example. You want to introduce it for us? Yeah. I'll Always Love My Mama by The Intruders. It's a came out in 1973 and i'm hoping listeners you know remember this song it was really popular especially on r&b stations and who knows maybe it was even played on soul shack i'm not sure all right well we're going to hear it um i'll always love my mama from the intruders and i'm going to at this point um invite listeners to call in um we're taking all kinds of observations and all kinds of insights um Messages to your mom, messages from moms to kids, um grandmas grandmas are absolutely part of this and um, thoughts about what made your mom special or makes your mom special. Um, we've got a whole lot of questions we're going to be asking. So here's the phone number to call. It is 831-476-2800, 476-2800 in the 831 area code. Be patient. We'll try to get to all your calls. Meanwhile, here's the song Andrea mentioned. Thank you. 
The Intruders there. Philly Soul from the early 70s, right, Andrea? Yeah. Big hit. Huge hit. And I, you know, I it's still a favorite song of mine. You know, I, I like it. And a lot of the lyrics, you know, I... I agree with and I think the same thing. How, you know, how I never understood how my mother made it through the week. And so I, you know, I definitely want to say that, yeah, she is strong and that strength is wonderful. I just always wonder about the flip side. Was your mom a hero to you? Absolutely. Still is. Mm -hmm. Still is. What kinds of things did she do uh, raising you as a single mom, you and your sister? I think first first of all the most important and the best thing that my mom did was that she was really open-minded you know she really in spite of the fact that you know we were working poor people and you know got all the messages that many working poor people get you know you're not to expect too much but my mom you know I went to Italy when I was 16 and how that happened my mom cleaned banks I was with her helping her out but you know she took a second job she would do whatever she needed to do so that we could just explore the world and i'll always be grateful for that yeah um andrea you don't have kids no i don't is is that a conscious decision or is that just a result of circumstances that just happened that way both yeah yeah a mix of both um in my you know before i was married i'm a i'm a widow um but you know right up before I got married and even during my marriage, I questioned whether or not I wanted to be a mother for some of the reasons that, you know, I mentioned earlier. I just, I knew I wanted a career and I felt like, why should I want to do everything, like be a superhero? Um, but at the same time, you know, so at some point, you know, I, I was questioning it, but at the same time, I also, you know, was open to being a mom. Unfortunately, you know, my husband passed away. Um, yeah. I, in terms of whether or not it's still a, conscious choice i mean i certainly could adopt or but um i also have reservations about being a single mom so mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it sounds like in a way as you were saying earlier that your mom's sacrifices set such a high bar that it kind of got intimidating it's really interesting to me yeah yeah well you brought another song that uh i'd like to go to we're going to let music do some of the talking today in this one it's called no charge oh now this i remember hearing Certainly not during a church service, but Mother's Day was at least big in my the church I attended growing up. And No Charge was one of those songs that I know was brought out during a special Mother's Day program later in the afternoon about, um, again, the, the sacrifices that moms make. Hmm. Well, let's hear it. This is Shirley Caesar, right? Yeah. Okay, No Charge. little boy came into the kitchen one evening while she was fixing supper and he handed a piece of paper that he had been writing on and after wiping her hands on her apron she took the letter in her hands and she read it and this is what it said for mowing the yard five dollars and for making up my own bed this week one dollar for going to the store 50 cents and playing with little brother while you went shopping 25 cents taking out the trash one dollar and for getting a good report card five dollars and for raking the yard two dollars total owed 14.75 
Well, she looked at him standing there expecting And a thousand memories began to flash through her mind So she picked up the pen and she turned the letter over and This is what she wrote to that little boy So, Andrea, you think uh, you think that's a fair representation of the uh, transaction that is motherhood? Lots of sacrifice, no charge. No charge. And um, you know, I, should, I think that song was written by Tammy Wynette, so I think it's pretty popular. Not to, I mean, I heard it, you know, in my church and the gospel version, Shirley Caesar. But you um, heard it in church, yeah, or in, uh-huh. at church programs. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but the fact that it's written by the great Tammy Wynette just lets me know that <laughs> I think it's, again, that universal sentiment that this is what moms do and there is no charge or, or is there? Mm-hmm. That's the question. And uh, it could be that a listener wants to take a stab at an answer. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, in fact, I would be curious what listeners think about this idea of no charge in the sense that I was online um, in Federal Express with a lot of other people spending a lot of extra money to get our cards <laughs> out. And even though they were just simple cards, I know I felt like I want my mom to have something on Mother's Day and was willing to pay for it. So to me, that's the the charge, I guess. Well, you remind me that uh, Mother's Day um, is associated with... Um, you know, honoring our mothers, but it's also associated with purchasing certain items, candy, flowers, and cards. Cards, yeah. And that it wasn't always so, that there is a history to Mother's Day that a lot of us, uh, I think, uh, perhaps weren't aware of, and I certainly wasn't until you enlightened me. I've got a little article here that I'm going to read with uh, hopefully appropriate music um, about the history of Mother's Day and how it became the, uh, well, somewhat commercialized holiday we know today. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is an article from Slate.com by Ruth Rosen. And uh, she points out that the women who originally celebrated Mother's Day conceived of it as an occasion to use their status as mothers to protest injustice and war. In 1858, Anna Reeves Jarvis organized Mother's Work Days in West Appalachian communities to protest the lack of sanitation that caused disease-bearing insects and polluted water to sicken or even kill poor workers. In 1870, after witnessing the bloody Civil War, Julia Ward Howe, a Boston pacifist, poet, and suffragist who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, proclaimed a special day for mothers to oppose war. For the next three decades, Americans celebrated Mother's Days for peace. On June 2nd, women political activists of this era fought to end lynching and organized to end child labor, trafficking of women, and consumer fraud. In their view, their moral superiority was grounded in the fact of their motherhood. Now, when Anna Reeves Jarvis died in 1905, her daughter, also named Anna, vowed to honor her mother's political activism by creating a National Mother's Day. The gift card and flower industries also lobbied hard. As an industry publication, the Florists Review put it, this was a holiday that could be exploited. In 1914, Congress responded and proclaimed the second Sunday in May to be Mother's Day. Companies seized on the holiday by setting out to teach Americans how to honor their mothers by buying them flowers, candy, or cards. This outraged Anna Jarvis, the daughter. When florists sold carnations for the then exorbitant price of $1 apiece on Mother's Day, she began to campaign against those who would undermine Mother's Day with their greed. But she was hardly a match for the flower and card companies. Soon the Florist Review announced, with a certain triumphant tone, that it was Miss Jarvis who was completely squelched. And they were right. Wow. Well, not completely squelched. I mean, Mother's Day is still associated with certain sentiments that um, go to the heart of um, nurturing and um, caring for each other, I think. So it yeah. hasn't completely lost that. And even, you know, I have mixed feelings, like I think most people do, about the whole card industry aspect of it. And at the same time, I spend a lot of time looking at cards carefully. Now, I, I'm struck by the fact that I don't see too many anti-war or some sort of paying homage to the fact that there's a political um, history behind Mother's Day that involves the peace movement or, or wanting peace and wanting to be, you know, anti-war. And so I would have loved to have picked up a card with Cindy Sheehan on the on the cover <laughs> or, or something like that. And, and I know my mom would have appreciated it also. Um, but, yeah, I spend a lot of time, you know, looking at cards and considering flowers and, and all that What do you look stuff. for in a card? Some kind of honest message, which is often kind of hard to find. You don't go for those silly humor cards. No, actually, you know, my mom often gets two cards. I, one funny, one serious. Um, and I try to find something, the serious one that's got a line that I actually would say to her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's your mom doing today? She's having brunch with my sister, who's now a mom. And uh, her, my sister, her husband, and their three kids. Uh, so they're doing the brunch thing. Yeah. Know. Well, there's another uh, bit of uh, information I thought I'd pass on to our listeners, knowing how curious and eager they are to learn. This one is about brunch. Shall we try that? The history of brunch? Well, there's a little bit of history in here. Okay. Yeah, I mean, how did it ever come to be called what it is? What and is, is it tied to mother mothers in some way, shape, or form? Well, let's or? just let me just read to you from Wikipedia. Okay. <laughs> okay. Brunch or bruncheon is a combination of breakfast and lunch. 
Did you know that? Yeah, that you sounds did. Okay. Good, yeah. The term is a portmanteau of breakfast and lunch. By the way, portmanteau is a portmanteau of port and manteau, meaning to carry and coat. Oh, all yes. right. Learn, some, learn a lot there in just you one go. sentence. Brunch is often served after a morning event or prior to an afternoon one, such as a wedding or sporting event. A common misconception is that after midday, the meal is a luncheon. This, however, is not true so long as a breakfast has not been eaten. There's your rules for you. Well, common in the United States and Canada, according to Punch magazine, the term was introduced in Britain around 1896, not that long before Mother's Day became an official American holiday. By Hunter's Weekly, then becoming student slang, if you can believe that. Other sources claim that the term was invented by New York Morning Sun reporter Frank Ward O'Malley based on the typical midday eating habits of a newspaper reporter. They don't mention drinking habits, but that works in as well, I suppose. Some colleges and hostels serve brunch, especially on Sundays and holidays. Such brunches are often serve-yourself buffets, but menu-ordered meals may be available instead of or with the buffet. The meal usually involves standard breakfast foods, such as eggs, sausages, bacon, ham, fruits, pastries, pancakes, and the like. However, it can include almost any other type of food served throughout the day. Buffets may have quiche, large roasts of meat or poultry, cold seafood like shrimp and smoked fish, salad, soups, vegetable dishes, many types of breadstuffs, and desserts of all sorts. Brunch meals are prepared by restaurants and hotels for special occasions such as weddings, valentines, or Mother's, Mother's Day. Day, with recipes available or meals offered. The Académie Française prefers that French speakers do not incorporate English words like brunch into their language and suggests using the phrase le grand petit déjeuner, literally the big breakfast. Or more literally, word for word, this means big little lunch. Despite the wishes of the Académie, the typical French person readily says brunch. In fact, most French-French dictionaries have an entry for brunch, but not for grand petit déjeuner. <laughs> Defining brunch is a meal taken late in the morning in place of both breakfast and lunch. German-language countries readily adopt anglicisms, and brunch is no exception, defining it as a combination of breakfast and lunch. However, the German language has a word for brunch. It is, and let me try this, Gobblefrischstück. Literally, fork breakfast. Well, the gobble, I mean, it sounds like what you would do at a brunch. <laughs> yes, well, we've got some uh, Mother's Day trivia there, and we are inviting callers to uh, join us here at KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. The numbers again are 831-476-2800. Yeah, and we're sharing all kinds of observations about Mother's Day and, uh, you know, favorite anecdotes, um, memories of your mom or... And I have a question for you and, and listeners about Mother's Day gifts. What kinds of gifts have you given? Like my mother and I did talk about, not a couple of days ago, but in the past we've joked about um, when we went through the appliance stage, giving her appliances for Mother's Day, <laughs> which I think was that, you know, well, we were well in, you know, we were well in touch with all the chores she did. So we knew when, you know, things were breaking, what to replace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about some more music? Sounds good. Mother liked a white wine when she was alive She was desperate to live, but her limit was five Carefully I'd kiss her and send her off to bed We always stuck with white wine, we stayed away from red 
Always stick with white wine. Stay away from mother. Like the white wine, she'd have a glass or two almost every single night after her day was through. Sancerre, Chardonnay, Chablis, Pinot Grigio, just to take the edge off, just to get the glow. You got to take the edge off if you wanna get the. Mother liked her white wine. She'd have a glass or three, and we'd sit out on the screen porch. White wine, O's mom and me. We'd talk about her childhood, recap my career. When we got to my father, that was when I'd switch to beer. We got to the old man, and I'd always switch to mother liked her white wine. She'd have a glass or four, each empty bottle a dead soldier. The marriage was the war. When we blurred the edges, when we drank a lot, that's when I got nervous. When the glow got hot, I always get nervous when the glow gets. I still like my white wine, and I'll have a glass or two. And when I'm down, I'll drink some whiskey. It's something I shouldn't do. And every now and then, I'll take a drop of red when I'm with a woman that I wanna take to bed. When I'm with a woman that I wanna take to mother, like that white wine when she was alive. She was desperate to live, but her limit was five. Carefully, I'd kiss her, send her off to bed. Thank God we stuck to white wine and we stayed away from mother like the white wine. And、um, we do have a caller as we celebrate Mother's Day on Central Coast Public Radio KUSP. This has already been a family affair. I think it's going to remain one. Hey there. Hi. <laughs> you want to introduce yourself? <laughs> sort of.、Uh, hi, I'm Elizabeth Polly. I'm the daughter of、uh, your mother. And where are you? I'm with mom right now. I want to say this was totally unexpected.、Um, it was. It was. I mean, it was. It's very impromptu. So,、um, what have you said to mom today? That、uh, well, that you'd like to share with us. Oh, what have I said?、Um, hmm. <laughs> I threatened that I was going to call the program and divulge all sorts of、uh, dirty laundry. Dirty laundry. There was a joke. Oh, I think I did enough of that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs>、um, well, I gave her a card. I I gave her a little gift that is quite meaningless, but it's an organizational tool. Not an appliance. Um. No, I was thinking about that appliance thing. Um. And I don't think. <laughs> I don't think I've given her appliance either, so we're a little behind the time. <laughs>、uh, so I'll put that on next year's list. I have to say, finding a gift for your mom is one of the toughest things a kid has to do, especially on Mother's Day. Anyway, she's—you know this. She's been a great mom. We're both real, really very, very lucky kids. And、uh, you know, I—I I 
reflect on that a lot because oftentimes I'll talk to friends of mine and hear their stories, and I, honestly, I feel like, wow, we had a good. We really had a good, especially given um, that those were times when I feel that there wasn't a, a great deal of consciousness when it came to healthy parenting. Um, and I know the one thing I can say about both mom and dad that's so meaningful is they, they really didn't have an agenda for us. I never felt, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. except to to be ourselves and sort of honor our creative, you know, voices. And is, and not steal their way into jail. Um, <laughs> that wasn't one of my issues. <laughs> yeah, I guess that, that, that too. <laughs> Well, you know, um, you say there wasn't a lot of consciousness about, you know, how to do parenting, and I think that's an ever-evolving thing. I mean, the the instructions change uh, from uh-huh. decade to decade. There was Dr. Spock, you know, and now mm-hmm. I'm not sure what the who the authority is. But uh, I wonder how much attention is being paid to how mothers take care of themselves, and despite the huge sacrifices, all the music we're playing today, almost all of it is about sacrifice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was looking for... Uh, looking for literary quotes that I remembered about this uh, this very subject, and I was thinking of a book by Louise Erdrich, the, the novelist who wrote about her first year as a mother in a book called The Blue Jays Dance, and she wrote, One reason there is not a great deal written about what it is like to be a mother of a new infant is that there is rarely a moment to think of anything else beside that infant's needs. Right. I take her instructions without translating her meaning into words, but simply bypass straight to action. My brain is a white blur. I lose track of what I've been doing, where I've been, who I am. So, you know, getting lost in motherhood, which can be, I'm sure, beautiful, but also dangerous. Well, Elizabeth, I've got to say goodbye to you because we've got to go on to another segment here. Good. Um, Okay, great. But, uh, you know. Thanks for the show. It's wonderful. It's something that I'll always have to remember, and and so I have to thank you for that. Okay. Okay. Well, love to you and Mom. Okay, thank you. Bye, Robert. Love you. Bye-bye. That was my sis, you know, um, and uh, I want to introduce another little segment here, someone who clearly loves his mom. Um, and sometimes I uh, kind of steer clear of, like, uh, wide-open uh, sentiments on this uh, this show uh, because, not because I'm inured to them, not because I'm tough, not because I'm jaded, but because I'm a coward, you know? It takes uh, it takes guts to wear your emotions on your sleeve and say, it, say what you really feel. So we're going to turn now to someone who has that kind of fortitude. So, Ben, why don't you introduce yourself? Um, hi, I'm Benjamin Charles Moss. I live in Lincolnshire, county of Lincolnshire, in England. And you are 14 years old? Yep, that's right. And a budding singer-songwriter? Yep. And what we're about to hear, you wrote for what uh, you Brits call Mothering Day? Yep, that's right. Which falls on uh, what day? Around, around the 9th of March in England. It, it looks from the YouTube uh, clip that I saw that you recorded uh, maybe in your bedroom? Down here, down in my living room. Oh, in your living room. Yeah, where I'm sitting there. Yeah, so when we hear the song, it's going to have some living room acoustics, but we're going to play it as you recorded it. And uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the song, and then we'll hear it. Okay, uh, I wrote this song for my mum, and uh, it's about my mum, but it's about what it's like, what typical mums do and things like that. Uh, sat down and wrote it myself, put uh, the music to it myself as well, with my acoustic guitar. Uh And that's about it, really. Okay, let's listen. 
singing his song called My Beautiful Mum. How did your mum react to that? Um, well, the first time I sang it to her, she cried. And that was at a gig I was doing in the mag- in a, a pub down in Lincoln called the Magna Carta. Yeah, she, she, she liked it. So. And you played it in a pub, huh? Yeah, I, yeah, I got a gig down in a, in a pub and uh, all my family came as well. And it was, it was my first proper gig, so it went really well. <laughs> I'm guessing your own, your own mum was not the only one crying. Uh, no, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of mums there, uh, sat all over the all over the restaurant, and uh, yeah, they was all cheering and saying how much they liked it and stuff like that. So Ben, what are your plans uh, musically going forward? Um, well, I'd definitely like to do something in the music industry, um, but definitely uh, an acoustic vocalist, something like James Morrison, mm-hmm. um, some, someone like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You sing a nice version of uh, Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Uh, thank you. Yeah, that's, yeah, one of my favorites. Well, Ben, we um, 
We look forward to hearing more from you. You want to say anything to, to the moms who are listening to our show right now? Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. And uh, I just want to say hi to one of my American friends on YouTube, and that's Steve Olson. Uh, I think he's a great musician. So <laughs> Simon Ollie is his YouTube name. Check him out. He's awesome. <laughs> great. And by the way, your, your, uh, your uh, screen name on YouTube is? Ben Antilad. And where'd you come up with that? Um, well, my dad and me are into motorbikes. And when I was on the back of a motorbike, I was really—I was quite small when I when I when I when I was on the motorbike, and uh, I was wearing these black leathers and a and a black helmet. And my godmother, Ali, she um, she we pulled up to to her house and she said, "Oh, you look you look like an ant on the back of that," <laughs> and a, a little ant. And I thought, "Oh, that, that's quite catchy." So I, I I thought my name was Ben, so I just changed it into Ben Antilad and <laughs> went on from there. <laughs> I, just want, I want it to be my stage name. So, <laughs> so it's B E N N A N T Y L A D, right? Yeah. Great. Capitals. Great. And that's how to find you on YouTube. Yeah. Well, Ben, thank you very, very much. Okay. Thank you very much. And uh, by the way, I said uh, that the Brits call it Mothering Day. I meant Mothering Sunday. That's the proper name of their version of Mother's Day. And this has been the 7th Avenue Project on Central Coast Public Radio, KUSP Santa Cruz and KBDH San Ardo. Coming up next, it is the Latin Quarter without Brett Taylor. In fact, Lynn is here. Brett is where else? With his mom.